and we're going to talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, today, uh, or tonight, we're really on the verge of what many call Passion Week or Holy Week. Many services and remembrances throughout Christendom concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the events that came before. Uh, this morning we spoke about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And this evening we will speak of the institution of the Lord's Supper, one of two ordinances of the New Testament church. Now perhaps you have had a curiosity as... Uh, um, probably I did when I was a boy, as you've watched the observance of the Lord's Supper. I grew up in a Bible-believing church, and the Lord's Supper was observed at different times according, uh, has been, uh, to the, uh, according to the tradition established by a particular church. Maybe your church uh, uh, did it every week. Maybe uh, you've uh, had, uh, been in a church where they do it once a, a month. Uh, like we do here, or once a quarter, or once a year. Uh, but uh, that's uh, established by a local church. We have liberty to do that. And, uh, but uh, many times it may be observed in the morning service. Uh, maybe you've had uh, that opportunity to do that sometimes in the evening. Um, and uh, I like to do it in the evening because uh, it's the Lord's Supper. Uh, and uh, that's one of the reasons, I guess, just for that reason. Uh, I think also in the evening service, we probably have uh, our congregation is usually made up of more uh, of the faithful people who are members of the church. Sometimes we have uh, people in the morning service that may not uh, be a part of our church and, and may not even be saved and so forth. Usually uh, most people are saved and that come in the evening. But uh, maybe you've had some curiosity about the Lord's table. The pastor comes to the front. You have a, a big table there. And the pastor uh, comes to the front with this table draped with a white cloth. And he holds his Bible or maybe his pastor's manual in his hand. And he rocks back and forth on his feet waiting for the deacons to uh, file to the front. And it seems like you know sometimes it gets to be choreographed. Uh, choreographed uh, an order uh, choreographed, I should say, uh, and maybe a couple of deacons like our deacons do. They remove the cloth, they step aside, and they begin to pass out the chrome trays of bread and grape juice and the other, with the other deacons and so forth. And a few words are spoken. Uh, scripture passages are read, and without fanfare, the church has absor- uh, observed the Lord's Supper. And then we go home. And perhaps for you, the Lord's uh, Supper has stood as one of the marks of the church life that's maybe not made a lot of sense other than being aware that Christ had commanded this memorial meal for the church. But what do those little pieces of bread mean? Uh, What does it mean when a pastor says, this is my body, reads that passage? I've heard that many times. Uh, I guess it was made plain to me that they were just uh, a piece of bread. What does that little cup of red grape juice mean? This is the blood, my blood of the covenant. Uh, the trays are passed. We dutifully take our place at the Lord's Supper, and perhaps it seems like only a ritual that we observe, and it has very little meaning. But I'm hopeful 
that your understanding of the Lord's Supper has grown considerably over the years. Uh, I've found, and I hope you will as well, the Lord's Supper uh, can be a spiritually nourishing time as we're able to focus by faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ and His death on our behalf, as well as the behalf of our brothers and sisters around us. Now, rather than the supper being merely a ritual that we are obligated to endure, I hope we see the Lord's Supper as a treasured part of our church life. time when this body of Christ can gather as one and remember our Lord to think, think about His sacrificial death and to consider the weightiness of Christ dying in our place before the wrath of God and know that the effects of that atoning death take on an ever-deepening dimension, especially as we're able to think about and ponder more clearly on the work of Christ for us. So, as we gather tonight to consider the Lord's Supper, not only do we consider the Lord's Supper, but we are going to actually partake this evening with this in mind. We desire to remember the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ more vividly, more realistically, through the Lord's Supper. And so how does the Lord's Supper help us to do that? Let me con- let's consider this ordinance of the church uh, tonight. First of all, I want us to uh, take note of the Supper. The Supper itself. Now the first Lord's Supper was a part of the Passover meal, celebrated by Jesus and his disciples. We have in Matthew uh, 26, and uh, uh, I know that we're studying this book uh, on Sunday mornings, but uh, uh, we'll come to it. I considered uh, looking at some of the other passages of the other Gospels and using them, but uh, Matthew 26 is a place where we find uh, the Lord's Supper instituted. Verse 26, it says... And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He gave to the disciples. Uh, Bread was part of the Passover meal along with the roasted lamb to remember the Passover lamb slain on their behalf, bitter herbs to remember the toil of bondage in Egypt, the uh, a dip of crushed fruit and vinegar that re- appeared to symbolize the mud used to make the bricks under Pharaoh's harsh command. Unleavened bread was used due to the haste in li- leaving Egypt on Passover night since the bread was still in the kneading bowls and had no time to rise. So as Jesus gathered his disciples for this last Passover feast, he began an institution, a new institution for his church, a wonderful permanent tradition for the local church, that is the Lord's Supper. We find what Christ instituted linked clearly with the redemption we see in the Old Testament and particularly associated with the sacrifices that were substituted for the people in preparation for the final sacrifice that God would send to redeem his people. So first of all, there's a historical link with redemption. An historical link with redemption. Passover brought both bitter and sweet memories for the Israelites. The bitter memories focused on their bondage of slavery uh, in Egypt. Uh, The sweet memories focused on Jehovah delivering them from that bondage by the plagues, especially the death of the firstborn and his 
parting the Red Sea so they might escape the armies of Egypt. As families gathered to eat the Passover meal and talk about the meaning of each symbol in the meal, they would sing the Howell Psalms, Psalms 113 through 118. They thought about redemption and what God provided to deliver them. But when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, the need for observing the annual Passover feast had ended. It says, for even Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. The bondage, remembered, was no longer in Egypt, but the greater bondage to sin and to Satan and the fear of death. No longer do we remember the Passover lamb whose blood was spread on the doorpost of each home among the Jews in Egypt, but we remember Christ, our Passover, who was given for us to deliver us from sin and from Satan and death. Redemption is needed only if someone is in a hopeless condition. And that's the situation of each one of us apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. We are enslaved to the prince of the power of the air, in bondage to the deadness and trespasses of sins, a suffering under the fear of death and judgment. A Redeemer comes to the aid of those in this kind of bondage, and through great price it provides payment for redemption. And in the case of the children of Israel... In Egypt, the Passover lamb bore the price of their redemption by offering its life for in their stead. For the penitent on the Day of Atonement, it was the blood of the goat that stood in the place of the people to bear their judgment away. But in our place, we have no blood of goat, bulls or goats, which can never take away sin. We have the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who through the Incarnation became a part of this the race that he came to redeem. And because the Son of God gave infinite value to his death for us, being human just as we are, gave him the right to bear away the judgment of God for his brethren. So there's a historical link with redemption. There's also a historical association with a substitute. As we think about the original Passover for a moment, you think about what took place? There was, it was after the nine plagues in Egypt. The hardness of Pharaoh seemed unflagging. Uh, un, uh, 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 he just wouldn't give in. Commanded Moses to leave his sight, to never appear before him again. And Moses assured him that he would see him no more. And then the Lord warned Israel that he would pass over Egypt and slay all the firstborn of man and beast unless he saw the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorposts. So Moses instructed the Israelites to select a lamb for each family. And upon slaying it, he would dip a branch of hyssop in the blood and apply the blood to the lintel and the doorpost and then remain in the, they would remain in their houses until morning. We read about it in Exodus chapter 12. Verse 23, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass when ye come to the land which the Lord will give you according as he hath promised 
that ye shall keep this service, and it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean, the, uh, what mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, It is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses, and the people bowed the head and worshipped. Now what kept these people from experiencing the same judgment as the Egyptians? It was not a certain level of righteousness. It was not acts of good deeds that they had offered to the God. It was only the Passover lamb that stood in their place by the sacrifice of its lifeblood that they were redeemed. The substitute, the substitute provided redemption. Now many lambs had died as substitutes for the people in the original Passover. But we have something even far greater. The Son of God became our substitute and felt in His own human nature the full measure of divine wrath due to us. And that's why Jesus declared His death in the Lord's Supper when He broke the bread and said, Take, eat, this is my body, and in the cup drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So that's the supper. And that's where it originated. That's where it came from. But notice, secondly, the symbols. Two very simple, common elements frame the practice of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. The bread served as a staple for that part of the world, just as it does in many portions of the globe today. The cup was part of the feast days and common to their lives. Both of these elements were part of the Passover meal. So it was within the context of the Passover that Jesus gave new meaning to the two elements. He gave them as lasting memorials for the New Testament church as to his death on our behalf. He did not include the bitter herbs or the crushed fruit that symbolized the difficulties and the bitterness or the, of the past error because Christ had taken away the bitterness of our sin and bondage. It does not include the annual slaying of a Passover lamb because Christ, our Passover lamb, was slain one time, once and for all. And the effect of his death secures us for eternity. Focus of the Lord's Supper is upon the body and the blood of Christ our Redeemer. First, there's the bread. This is my body. It says here, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now that last phrase, this is my body, has been subject of endless debate. Roman Catholicism holds that upon the consecration of a wafer or host. The bread becomes the actual body of Christ. But just as the Passover meal was filled with symbolism, so also is the bread of the Lord's table. Christ our Lord, the exalted God-man, sits at the Father's right hand, not in a little plate that's being served. Christ has already been sacrificed for us. It says in Hebrews 10.10, by the which we are are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So Christ's command, take, eat, this is my body, calls for us to look to Him, to think upon Him, 
in His incarnation, to consider the necessity that God the Son become part of the race that He came to redeem and realize anew the price that He bore on our behalf. Secondly, there's the cup. (coughs) This is my blood of the New Testament. He took the cup and He gave thanks and then gave it to the disciples saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Just with the bread, the wine, or the juice does not become the actual blood of Jesus Christ. He shed His blood for us once, so no new sacrifice is needed to give grace to sinners. Christ declared, it is finished when He died on the cross. No more can be added to that bloody death. Yet we are to remember each time we observe the Lord's table, we're to remember anew the cost of the new covenant relationship that we have with Him. Moses ratified the old covenant by sprinkling blood upon the people after he had read from the book of the covenant, the law. In Exodus 24, 7, All that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient, the children of Israel declared. In order to show that they had covenanted with God to fully obey Him, and that the Lord had committed to bless the people as long as they kept His covenant promise. It goes on to say, And Moses took the bread and sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. But the blood of Christ enacted a new covenant, one that is not bilateral, so that each must keep up His covenant promises, but rather one that is unilateral or one-sided. The old covenant hinged on the people's faithfulness to keep the law. Of course, we realize that they failed miserably. No one could keep the law. Just as we, too, would have done, we're not any better. The law served the purpose to reveal the depths of human sinfulness. But what we needed was not a new law to save us, but we needed grace. Such is the new covenant enabled by the blood of Jesus. In Jeremiah, it describes for us, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so it was necessary that the new covenant be mediated by the blood of Jesus Christ, the new covenant with promises of grace. The writer of Hebrews declares, But now hath he obtained more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. 
in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old, now which that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And so the covenant which we enter into by grace through faith in Christ promises forgiveness of sins. And so we drink the cup as a reminder of the price for our forgiveness. The bloody death of Jesus Christ the Lord on our behalf. Now notice in here verse 29 says, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Each time we drink of the cup of the Lord's Supper, we also anticipate the day of consummation when all that Christ has secured for us in the death, His death and resurrection will come to a grand consummation in His kingdom forever. Then I want you to notice, thirdly, the spiritual realities. So what are we doing this evening? But we're joining together here at the Lord's table. And there are often three mistakes that are made against, uh, which is here necessary to be on our guard. First of all, we should be careful not to confound the spiritual blessing with a sign. Secondly, not to seek Christ on earth or under earthly elements. Or thirdly, not to imagine any other kind of eating which draws us into the life of Christ by a secret power of the Spirit in which, by which we obtain faith alone. The reality of this tonight, first of all, is a blessing. Notice the blessing. The blessing of the Lord's Supper is not found in the symbols, but in Christ. It's not the actual bread or the cup of juice that gives the blessing, or the strength, or the grace, but it's Christ. So our focus is not upon some mystical changing of these elements at the table but they serve to help us focus our attention on Christ given for us at the cross. And the true mystery is not found in the bread or the cup, but in the greatness of God's love and His kindness to us that He would be pleased to send His Son to become a part of the human race and to suffer His own infinite wrath on our behalf at the cross. But there's also the blesser. The one who blesses is not some power in the bread or the cup. You know, some approach the Lord's Supper as uh, superstitious. They, they come superstitiously as though the actual eating of this little piece of bread or drinking the cup of juice serves as a source of blessing. No. The one who blesses us is Christ. Again, keep your focus on Christ. Look to Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, exalted as the Sovereign Lord, reigning until every enemy is put under His feet. The blesser is Christ. And then thirdly, the blessed. Remember that time that Jesus told His hearers in John chapter 6, I believe it is, in verse 53, he said, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up in that last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink 
indeed. Now this is no call for cannibalism, but it's really by the supernatural work of the Spirit as we believe Christ, as we receive Him and all of His life on our behalf. So in the Lord's Supper, we partake by faith. We receive the life and death of Christ on our behalf, finding our satisfaction in Him alone as our Savior and our Lord. And so we come to feast upon Jesus Christ, not as some mystical transformation in the elements, but through faith, looking again to Jesus Christ, remembering Him in the Incarnation, His righteous life, His substitutionary death, and His eternal satisfaction of God's eternal justice for us. And I want us to look to Jesus and remember with deep satisfaction that He alone can forgive us our sins. He alone can give us new life that never ends. And so as kingdom citizens, having been purchased and redeemed to be a part of His kingdom through the blood of Christ, we worship Christ in the Lord's Supper. In a few moments, we're going to partake of these elements. Again, the Lord's Supper is for the local church. It's for us who know Christ as our Savior. It's in obedience to Him. If you're not, if you're not saved tonight... This Lord's Supper won't do you a bit of good. As I just said, it's not something that will bless you. It's not something that will uh, do anything for you. The only way uh, Christ can do anything for you is for you to put your faith and your trust in Him. Let me give you the ending of my message tonight. In verse 30 of Matthew 26, it says, And they... When they had sung the hymn and hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. When they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And that's what we're going to do as well. Uh, We're not going to find any Mount of Olives around here, but we're going to go out from here after we sing a closing hymn. But listen tonight as I want to impress upon our hearts this evening a thought that you may or may not have ever thought of before. I don't know. But don't you think it would be, have been great to have been at that first Lord's Supper? That probably would have been an amazing thing. Even though there was an uneasy moment there when Jesus told them there was going to be one that was going to betray Him, and I think it must have probably been a wonderful time, very moving time. And they concluded their time with a hymn, probably one of the Psalms, And then they went out. But I want you to notice with me as we conclude our time here tonight what happened next. Someone has said, and we're going to look here briefly at verses 31 through 35. Someone has said that God's best gifts are not things, but opportunities. And what we call adversity, God calls an opportunity. Peter missed many opportunities, many important opportunities. Now, we're not going to look at them all tonight. We'll save that for our study when we get to there at this place in our study of Matthew. But as you look ahead in this chapter, we see that Peter boasted when he should have listened. Uh, he slept when he should have prayed. Uh, Peter fought when he should have surrendered. Uh, Peter followed 
when he should have fled for safety. And then when opportunity came to repent, he wept. But here in verse 31, it says, Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for I, it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. <clears throat> now this most likely was in a conversation on the way to Gethsemane, to the garden. And he quotes Zechariah 13 and verse 7, where it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine head upon the little ones. Well, he who was able to speak words of infallible truths, he goes back to the Old Testament Scriptures. He didn't say something new. He goes back and he uses the Scriptures as he talks to his disciples. And he says in verse 32, But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. And here he speaks of a twofold promise. He talks about resurrection and reunion. Of course, they'll forget this, so he'll have to send an angelic messenger with a reminder back over in chapter 28. But I want you to notice the promise, I will go before you. As a shepherd leads his flock, Jesus promises he does so, uh, as he does so often, that he will not only be with them, but he'll go before them. But then there's Peter. Verse 33. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Be careful about saying never. This is not only presumptuous and self-confident, but it's a flat contradiction of the Master's declaration. This was a terrible and serious as a deckhand who boasted about the Titanic. God Himself could not sink this ship. And 1,502 people perished. Even if all will, I will never you know, few people need voice lessons to sing their own praise. Reminded of a sign in front of an Atlanta restaurant featuring fried chicken. It said, if the colonel had our chicken recipe, he'd be the general. You know, they were singing their praises. They had the best. And you know, it's easy for us to sing our own praises. And, and Peter was, was saying, I will never... even though everybody else does. Verse 34, Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, this, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Double self-confidence leads to triple denial. Jesus is basically saying, not only are you not better than the rest, you will show yourself even more cowardly. And what's amazing is we have a perfectly obedient rooster, but a denying disciple. And then verse 35, Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise said all the disciples. 
Now, we're pretty hard on Peter when it comes to his boasting and his denials. But you notice there, all of the disciples said the same thing. You see, we're all involved in this, not just Peter. And again, Peter contradicts his master straight to his face with his self-confident declaration. Now, here's my point. And here's the conclusion of what I'm saying here at the end. How many times have we come to this table and piously and perhaps sincerely remembered what Jesus did for us on Calvary's cross? We sing a hymn and then we go out and then we deny the Lord Jesus Christ in our daily living. We go out confidently and boastfully even perhaps thinking, I'm going to live for Jesus. And then we question His ability to take care of us. We fail to read and to meditate on His Word. We deny Him by not being a witness to those we come in contact with. And I wonder if we were in Peter's place or in the disciples' place that night, how we would have reacted to the challenge of being one of the Lord's disciples. And so I trust in these closing moments that we'll think about, you know, it's a wonderful thing to observe the Lord's table. It's a wonderful thing to be obedient to God when He tells us to do that. It's a wonderful thing to think about what Jesus Christ did for us. It's a wonderful thing to lift our voices together and sing a hymn and to go out from here. But then what happens beyond those doors? What happens tomorrow and Tuesday and the next day? Are we denying Christ with our lives? And I trust we'll think about this in the moments and the days ahead. Let's bow our heads in prayer.